You're listening to The Reconditioned Podcast, and on this episode, I speak to Lauren Cadillac about how we can use intuitive eating to help us get back to a place of body acceptance. So keep listening for all things wellness and growth. Your personality creates your personal reality. Authentic power is when your personality comes to serve the energy of your soul. The truth is the body is one ecosystem. You can get to the root cause and everything goes away. Welcome to the Reconditioned Podcast, where I use my knowledge and expertise of over a decade in the wellness and transformation world to take a deep dive into what makes us thrive as humans. I'm Lauren Vacneen, leading wellness and transformation coach. And following my remission from the rheumatoid arthritis I'd had for 27 years that left me wheelchair bound by the age of 18, I created a unique coaching combination, conflating physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual aspects of self to create true long lasting well-being in all senses of the word. This podcast is one of the many free resources I've created to help you achieve the same. Whether you're suffering from chronic illness, raising children in a world of conflicting information, you're an entrepreneur wanting to step into your purpose, or you simply want to feel empowered and motivated to become the best version of yourself, join me along with expert guests as we uncover the most actionable and tangible ways to recondition ourselves back to wellness. This season of Reconditioned is sponsored by Block Blue Light, the world's leading supplier of blue and artificial light blocking products, including blue light glasses and blue blocking lighting solutions. Blue light blocking products aim to alleviate digital eye strain, improve sleep, and optimize health through mitigating the harmful effects of artificial light from screens and modern lighting. For a 10% discount across the range, visit blockbluelight.co.uk and enter the code LAUREN10. Thank you to Block Blue Light. Lauren Cadillac is a Manhattan-based registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counsellor and certified personal trainer, as well as a retired national bikini competitor. Lauren runs her own virtual private practice, helping clients to ditch the dieting cycle and heal their relationship with food using the intuitive eating framework. So hi, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. How are hi. you? It's going to get a bit confusing with all the Lauren. I know. I think we'll manage. Uh-huh. Thanks for having me today. I'm excited to chat. Oh, you're so welcome. We tried this a few weeks ago, didn't we? We tried this over Thanksgiving and yep. you were having, the universe having it. Okay. The universe was not having it. There was nope. no, uh, there was no Wi-Fi and that's fine. So I feel good about that. I feel good that we're, it was meant to be today and we're going to really dive into everything. So I kind of want to start by saying I'm like a kid in a candy store right now because I'm obsessed with this topic and I'm really excited to speak about it. Um, I'm a nutritionist. I know as dietitians, you study for a lot longer, but I never took on a nutrition client and just gave them a nutrition plan because I knew that it came down to mindset and Mm -hmm. a woman learning to love her body and know her body and you know, all of that comes first. Otherwise people will just continue yo-yo dieting if the mindset's not changed. So I think this approach is life-changing for women who have always yo-yo dieted and don't have the best relationship with their body. So we're going to dive deep into that. But I think before we do, a great place to start would be for you to tell us exactly what is intuitive eating. Sure. Uh, So basically intuitive eating is a framework for eating based off of 10 principles. And it was created back in 1995 by two dietitians, um, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. And it's basically a self-care model for eating. Um, is it excessive to go into what the 10 <laughs> principles are? No, I mean, we can touch on them. I, th- I think it's good. I think anyone listening to this right now will be women, probably like you and me, who've not always had a good relationship with their body, perhaps women who still don't have a good relationship with their body. And the idea of intuitively eating can be either very daunting because is mm-hmm. this going to make me put on loads of weight and we'll get to that or yep. really liberating and exciting so I think the 10 steps would be great and then maybe we'll go into your journey a little bit perfect and I think you're so right I think you can often be a combination of those two emotions where mm-hmm. it feels liberating but also really really scary at the same time because it's just the complete opposite of everything we've really been taught our entire lives so it's quite radical 
so basically it starts out, the first principle is rejecting the diet mentality. So in that principle, we kind of explore the science behind why diets don't work the harm they can potentially cause, um, and then just kind of exploring uh, each person's actual history. You know, it's the science is one thing, but what has your own history shown you, right? Like, has the diet ever been sustainable? Has the weight loss been sustainable? So that's really the, the first step, because if we don't reject the diet mentality, it's really hard to implement the other nine principles because we might be Instead of relying on what our body is telling us, we're going to still approach food from a place of wanting to lose weight. And that's going to cloud our judgment, basically. So that's the first step. Principle two is honoring our hunger. Pretty straightforward as to what that means. But it is placed second in this process because the whole process is a dynamic interplay of instinct, emotion, and rational thought. And it's not really possible to think rationally if our brains are not receiving adequate glucose. So that's why that's why honoring our hunger is principle two. Principle three is making peace with food. This is a big one. So getting rid of that good food, bad food dichotomy, getting rid of the morality around food. You know, you're not a good person for eating one thing and a bad person for eating another. Um, you know, with every diet that we try, there's always a list of eat this, not that. And with you know, all of the, you do Weight Watchers and then paleo and then fasting, every diet you do you start to build up this list of rules that kind of start to conflict with one another. You know, if you do Weight Watchers, you're focused on points, but then you do paleo or keto, and now you want higher fat foods, but on Weight Watchers, that might be higher points. So it's all confusing. And then it's like, I don't even know what to eat anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so it's trying to get rid of um, any, I, I want to say getting rid of any emotion around food. Uh, but obviously that's not something that just happens instantly. It's really getting rid of that good food, bad food dichotomy. And as we're doing that, it's very likely that different voices pop up in our head. You know, we're trying to introduce food that were previously off limits. And with that usually comes a voice in our head that tells us, should I really be doing this? I can't believe you're eating blah, blah, blah. And so that's why the fourth principle is challenging the food police. So that's really about creating a more supportive inner dialogue kind of like how you might talk to a friend or how you might talk to a child, basically. So it's creating a more compassionate uh, inner voice. Uh, principle five is discovering the satisfaction factor. So that's really the driving force of intuitive eating. So it's all about deriving satisfaction from your food, which is kind of a radical concept <laughs> in diet culture, right? Because we're kind of taught to um, give up satisfaction in the pursuit of thinness or whatever it might be. Um, but, you know, in, in like Japanese culture, that's one of the main tenets of health and well-being is enjoying your food. And, you know, in again, in an attempt to lose weight, oftentimes we sacrifice satisfaction and pleasure. And I don't know if you've ever had this experience for Sam, but I'm sure a lot of people listening can relate to, you know, having a craving for something. I know I do a lot of these infographics on Instagram where you have a craving for ice cream, but your food police voice tells you that ice cream's bad and you can't have ice cream. So instead you might get some halo. Do you have halo top? In no. What's that? Okay. It's like a diet ice cream. It tastes okay. like flavored ice, essentially. It doesn't okay. taste like, it's like a sad excuse for ice cream. You're really you selling have, it. <laughs> that's the thing. When you're dieting, it might kind of seem like, oh, let me try this thing. But then you have the real version of ice cream. You're like, okay, this tastes nothing like it. But basically what I'm trying to say is you reach for a substitute and then that substitute doesn't satisfy. So you reach for something else and then that mm. doesn't satisfy and something else and something else. And then you might have the experience of, well, I just ate all of these things. So I blew it. So why not just have the thing in the first place versus I'm craving X. Let me have that in a satisfying way. What does that mean? Eating in a satisfying environment. It means um, leaving the table comfortably full. So that's the fifth principle. Principle six is feeling our fullness. Kind of straightforward with what that means, but that hunger and fullness, that's kind of our body's way of auto-regulating our food intake. We're kind of taught that we need to portion control things. Otherwise, you will just eat indefinitely. And that's just not the case. So that principle is really about getting rid of obstacles that get in the way of being able to hear our fullness views. Principle seven is coping with our emotions with kindness. So coming up with some other coping mechanisms, making sure that other areas of our lives are tended to. Um, you know, it's fine to cope with food from, from time to time. We just don't want that to be our only coping mechanism because it's not going to, uh, it's not going to fix 
the original source of that negative emotion, right? It might temporarily, but eventually, you know, if there's uh, a project at work that you really need to get done, eating might offer you some type of uh, avoidance from that, but eventually you have to get that project done. And now you might have the discomfort of um, the anxiety or fear about doing that project and the discomfort of eating beyond what your body needed in that moment if you weren't hungry, right? So again, kind of coming up with some other coping mechanisms. Principle eight is all about respecting our body. So getting away from the scale, wearing clothes that are comfortable, talking kindly to ourselves, not body bashing, trying not to compare ourselves to others. This is usually the principle that I find um, takes a bit longer because it's the body image piece of things. Um, we obviously have mechanisms within our body to try to auto-regulate our food intake but we don't have those same kind of mechanisms when it comes to our body image. So I think that's why it takes a little bit longer. Um, principle nine is movement, feel the difference. So that's all about engaging in movement because you actually enjoy it versus because you feel like you have to just to burn yeah. calories. You know, I think so many people take, I, I mean, people probably, some people love hit classes. Some people hate them, but then take them because they think um, they have to, or to only kind of work out that quote unquote counts or, certain calorie burn or whatever it might be. But if you don't enjoy something or it's really painful, it's likely that you're not going to stick with it. Um, and, and similar to making peace with food, it's really about getting rid of that all or nothing mentality. You know, I think a lot of times people think, well, I don't have an hour to work out. So what's even the point versus mm -hmm. I have 10 minutes, maybe some gentle yoga would feel really good. Mm -hmm. So again, focusing on movement for the benefits outside of what it does to your external appearance. And then um, principle 10 is honoring our health using gentle nutrition. I think on Instagram and social media, you see a lot of pictures of intuitive eating, um, you know, cupcakes or pizza or whatever it might be. And it, I think it gets misinterpreted as there's no focus on health whatsoever. It's mm -hmm. just eat whatever you want, whenever you want with no regard for how you feel or health or anything. And that just couldn't be further from the truth. There's a, a whole principle dedicated to it. We just save it for the end because if we talk about it too early on, it can get seen through that dieting lens, that all or nothing lens. So one through nine is kind of really laying that foundation to make sure that the relationship with food is really strong and stable. And then from there, we can kind of add on the nutrition stuff. So, well, yeah, because I, I guess <laughs> you are a dietitian, so you're not there telling people, you know, eat all the cupcakes and pizzas and burgers and everything that you want and it's fine if your body's telling you to eat it there is a balance and I think all of these points seem to come down to balance and mm -hmm, probably mm -hmm. you know intuition this is intuitive eating and uh -huh. I think a lot of the problem and you tell me if you, you see this with your clients and, and generally having been in this world I feel like as a society as a species we have mm -hmm. lost touch with our intuition we have forgotten how to follow our intuition. I see it with parents, you know, with mums and, you know, new mums often. And, you know, it happened to me as well. But we don't use our intuition with our bodies in parenthood and anything. What do the books tell us to do? That's what we'll do. And so mm -hmm. we've stopped actually learning exactly how to tap into it. What is my intuition telling me? Is my body telling me I'm full or am I going to carry on eating? Because when I was seven, my mom told me I had to finish everything on my plate every mealtime. So I no longer understand the feeling of being satiated. Mm -hmm. So it's just kind of coming back to this awareness, this bodily awareness. Yes. And that's like the, the driving force of this. It's about uh, interoceptive awareness, being able to sense the cues that our body is giving us. And we're so cut off from that because I think we spend so much time up here, like in our, in our heads, thinking yes. about things of she, uh, they told me to do this. And she said that and blah, 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 versus like, you know, my handle is feel good dietitian. And when I say feel, I mean, like, how do you physically feel? And a lot of times very early on in the process for a lot of clients, there is a very big disconnect between like the brain and the body. It's like, uh, being able to even describe what fullness or hunger looks like or feels like is very challenging for a lot of people. And I think as the example that you gave, we're taught from a very young age um, that we can't trust our bodies, right? Like uh, I'm full. No, you have to finish everything yeah. on your plate. And that kind of starts to erode the self-trust that we have in our mm -hmm. bodies. Or even, you know, kids want to eat at four o'clock, but the mom's like, well, no, dinner's at 5.30. All the mm -hmm. kid's hungry. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. From a conscious parenting perspective is let the child understand their body and have autonomy over their body. And yeah. if they do that, and it really comes down, it really feeds nicely into this. No, we're not talking about parenting. But for anyone that does have children, I think this is important that we're raising a generation of children who understand the cues that their bodies are telling them. And, yeah. you know, most of that, it's tiredness, it's sleep and it's food, you know. Mm-hmm. If the child mm-hmm. is hungry, let them eat. And if the child is full, allow them to stop. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that's kind of the motivating factor for a lot of the people that I work with is they grew up in a home where that wasn't the case. It was, they were put on diets at age seven, eight, nine, five, even, you know, and it's like, I know what that did to me and I've been dieting since then. And I don't want to pass that along to my kids. And so it's really cool to see all of these people wanting to break that, break that cycle, you know, because I mean, no parent ever does that intentionally where they're like, intentionally causing harm to the child right like no no it's all conditioning it's the way we've been conditioned and the way our parents have been conditioned and the way they were conditioned and you know so everything on your plate and that's very much like a wartime parent thing you know like our parents were brought up with the war generation parents who didn't have enough food and so it was eat everything on your plate because you don't know the next time that you'll eat or you know yes which is is interesting because that mirrors the diet mentality of if there's a diet around the corner I have to eat everything now it's like that last supper eating like Mm. well I'm not going to be able to eat it later so I have to eat it all now and some people kind of perpetually live in that last supper mentality because they think that they're going to have to go on a diet so it's amazing what deprivation does (laughs) yeah or if you come from a family where you know there there was like maybe loads of kids and so there wasn't there was a certain amount and whoever you had to take quickly to get enough and yes, so, yes. you know, there was, and, and so you, you still do that. And actually yep. this, I, I do a lot of stuff with ancestral healing and mm-hmm, kind of speaking mm-hmm. about the generational aspect of it. I do think there's an ancestral aspect there, you know, I mean, I, you know, from <clears throat> ancestrally with, <clears throat> excuse me, um, I see it with friends whose families were in the Holocaust and, mm-hmm. you know, <clears throat> a friend of a family friend of ours never left the house. Like he was, he was in the Holocaust, he was in Auschwitz. Never left the house after that without having a piece of bread in his pocket. So his children and subsequently his grandchildren do the same. Yeah, I'm not saying yeah. they go out the house with a piece of bread in their pocket, but whatever their version of that is. You know, me mm-hmm. and my sister spoke mm-hmm. about this a lot from how we were raised. And again, you know, we didn't have the, the Holocaust side of things there. But my sister and I were laughing about this when we were really delving into it, how we never left the house without a snack because we were kind of mm-hmm. scared of being hungry. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I live in London. There's food everywhere. You know, why am I scared of being out of the house without food? So that was like a journey of, of realizing and acknowledging that I was doing that. Speaking of journeys, let's go into yours because I really want to know how you got into this. Um, it is like, it's quite the journey. It's funny. I'll have, um, you know, dietetic students <laughs> DM me on Instagram and ask like, how did you become an intuitive? Like, what path did you take? I really want, I'm like, don't do, <laughs> I mean, I, I don't regret anything that I've done. But it was a very windy road to kind of figure out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to be. So basically, um, I struggled with like eating when I was like 14, 15, you know, I I got really into calories and and there was stuff going on there, which kind of led me to want to go to college to study nutrition, as I think a lot of dietitians um, do. So I became a dietitian. I started working in the clinical setting. I didn't love that. Um, I had a friend that was a personal trainer at the time and he knew that I wasn't really loving that job. Um, and so he suggested that I try bodybuilding as a way to potentially change the path of my career. Uh, so I started doing that. Um, the more I got into that industry, I actually became, when I, when I look back, I'm just like, who were you? I was a sports, I was a sales rep for a sports supplement company. So at one point I sold like pre-workouts, fat burners, uh, like all of these products wow. that I'm now, I'm like, oh my gosh, like, <laughs> sorry. so I started the, uh, I started that job. I quit my job at the hospital, um, got very into the bodybuilding industry. I did like a, a bunch of shows in 2014, 2015, 2016. And during that time, I actually developed, um, bulimia it was like my first off season where I had to start eating again and 
eating again, eating more to put on, you know, muscle mass and all that stuff. And I had always struggled with like body image things, I think, as many young adults do. Um, and it was really the first time that I had seen my body change in such a drastic way and the attention that I got from it and the praise and mm. just like the sense of control. And then to have to go and put weight back on, it was like this intense fear of I'm going to go back to being normal and I'm going to lose everything that I just gained. And so that every time I would try to eat, it would couple it with the fact that I had basically been starving for however many months. So there was my body kind of reacting and and kind of driving me to binge, but also that fear of uh, weight gain and and all of the other things. And so then I, I struggled with that for, you know, two-ish years, three-ish years. Um, and the only way I was able to get it under control, quote unquote, was, you know, to do another shows because I had something else to focus on and I was dieting again. But then anytime I was done with the show, I wouldn't know how to eat. Um, and so basically <laughs> through my own healing and recovery of that, that's kind of how I came to be where I am today. You know, I started working with a therapist. I started doing CBT. Um, actually a fellow dietitian that I did my dietetic internship with years ago, she said, Hey, I'm doing this, um, retreat. It was in Vermont. And that's where they introduced health at every size and intuitive eating. And my first reaction, as I think most people's knee jerk reaction is, well, that's dumb. Like, so we're just supposed to tell people to eat French fries all day. Like that doesn't make sense. That's not healthy. And the more I dove into it, the more I was like, oh, this is what I've been looking for my entire life. Like this, obviously we just talked about intuition a good bit. I'm a very big believer in getting that sensation, like that feeling of knowing where something just sits really well with you. And you're like, yes, like you get that feeling of this is right. This feels authentic to me. And so I, as I went through my journey, I saw, you know, the transformation that it had in my relationship with food and my body image and all that stuff. And I was like, you know what? I think a lot of other people, because I never realized that anything I was doing was wrong. Obviously I knew that the purging was not healthy, but prior to that, I never considered cutting this food out or tracking my calories or whatever it might be. I never realized that that could be potentially Mm -hmm. problematic. And so once I learned all of this stuff, I was like, I think everyone's kind of, involved in some type of disordered eating, you know, it's just like we're prescribed disorder almost from diet culture. So that's when I was like, I I want to niche down my practice. And this is what I want to do. I want to focus on this because I think it can be life changing. And and so here we are. (laughs) Wow. And so how do you feel about your body now? You know, it's so interesting, because you think, and and I I want to acknowledge that I still live in a thin body. You know, there is thin privilege that I have. And I I just want to always acknowledge that because I think there's a lot of people like me. I am a a white, thin, cisgendered female. I'm like the stereotypical dietitian, you know? So I always kind of want to acknowledge that um, if you're learning about intuitive eating for the first time, for me, that's awesome. But there's also lots of other people that are great to learn from as well. But anyways, back when I was bodybuilding and I always thought like, okay, once I lose weight, once I look like a bodybuilder, I will love my body. And it couldn't be further from the truth. Like there were times when I was like, oh, this looks good or this looks good. But it was always because that sport is so, um, I mean, it's an aesthetics competition, right? Mm -hmm. That's it. So I just became obsessed with, well, this isn't small enough and this isn't tight enough and I'm holding some water here and blah, blah, blah. And I never thought I'd be able to be happy being slightly larger, obviously, you know, that triggered a lot for me, the fear of gaining weight. But now I'm like, I like my body so much more now. And I have so much more respect for it now than I did when I was, I don't know, 25, 30 pounds lighter. You know, Mm -hmm. I I mean, I I appreciate everything that it does for me. I, I pretty much ran it into the ground. I disrespected it for years and it's still here and it's still taking care of me. So but it, you know, it's an ongoing journey. It's, I try to not spend so much time focusing on my body to be completely honest. Cause I think it kind of takes away from it. 
it, it focuses on my body still where it's like let's get away from bodies in general like cool they're great bodies are great they do a lot for us but there's also a lot more to yes, us you know yeah. and it is that that issue you were saying you know when you were doing that stuff people were giving you praise because mm-hmm. this is where we live now this, we live in in a society that praises thinness and you know and and I see it if I've lost weight and I am very much an intuitive eater. I don't, I mean, I'm all about health. Everything, you know, came, my remission came from nutrition. Yeah. But I do not count calories and I never have done. And I do not watch what I eat in that respect. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I, I gained baby weight, you know, after having my kids. I was really bloated afterwards. I was breastfeeding. I had arthritis flare-ups after I couldn't move. And, and then I got better and I lost weight. Oh my God, you're so thin. And I have said to a few people who found it very strange and got a bit offended by me, that's not a compliment. Please don't use that as a compliment. You can say you look nice. Yeah, yeah. You look really good. You look healthy. Mm-hmm. You know, you look great, whatever. But don't use thin as a compliment because I don't want my children ever to hear me complimenting someone because they are thin. And because they're thin, they got a compliment. So then it leads me to think, well, what were they thinking about me the year before after I had my babies? And I was nourishing them with my own body and I had them with this body, but I didn't get that same compliment. They didn't say, well done, you're amazing. You birthed, you grew a human. You birthed it, nourishing it with your own body. No, no. They would, what were they looking at me thinking? Well, you're a bit fat now. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I never want my children to hear me ever complimenting someone based on thinness. And I do, I stop someone anytime they say that and it's, they get offended, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because I think people, people think that they are giving a compliment. And again, mm-hmm. I don't think anyone's intentionally trying to cause harm. Mm-hmm. It's just, we need to have those conversations. Of, yes, that's not a compliment. It makes me uncomfortable. Because like you said, it's like, you're, you're clearly analyzing my body. And yeah. then that means I didn't look this way a year or two ago. And so yeah. you must have been observing it then. And you know, I had, um, I had a group session on Tuesday. And we were going through the reject the diet mentality um, principle. And that was one of the questions was, you know, what keeps your desire for weight loss there? Like what was one of the best parts of losing weight in the past? And that, and then the clothing part of things, Mm -hmm. like fitting into clothes easier, which is just an issue with the fashion industry. Um, But the compliments and the attention from people the biggest thing you know yeah. because when maybe you gain the weight back then the compliments stop and but stop it's not it. just that the compliments stop it's like okay so now you're aware that that specific person complimented you when you were smaller mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. they must be judging you now that you're not that small exactly. and that's my issue and like you say no one does it out of malice it's the way they've been conditioned but if we don't yeah. have those conversations and we don't tell those people then their children will never hear it any differently and we'll just continue mm-hmm. perpetuating the cycle so yeah, yep. I think it's a it's a good point to bring up. I wonder if you think that people kind of all have their own natural body shape and that is where they should remain kind of. I, I remember I, I know you actually I got introduced to you by Stevie, our mutual friend Stevie. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah so awesome. she she's amazing. So she <laughs> was on the show last year and um she said something to me a while back. Um, and I'm just paraphrasing because I'm probably not going to say it as good as she did, but she said, you know, we all have kind of a natural body shape, mm-hmm. you know, genetically, et cetera. Yep. Yep. If you are eating healthily, you know, mm-hmm. healthily, not depriving yourself, obviously not depriving yourself doesn't mean having whatever you want all the time, but mm-hmm. eating mm-hmm. a healthy balanced diet without depriving mm-hmm. yourself, whatever your body is at that point, that is your body. Yeah. I wonder what mm-hmm. you think about that. Oh, I agree with that 100%. And, you know, I think it's interesting. I think my experience with bodybuilding surprisingly reinforced that idea to me because even though we were intentionally trying to shift the distribution of muscle mass or just change the shape of our body, at the end of the day, we all had like genetic predisposition. Like for me personally, I cannot, like, I don't gain weight in my legs. I can't put muscle on in my legs. I gain all my weight in my stomach. Mm. Other, oh, I'm the same. Yeah, other people. Exactly the same. Yeah, exactly. And I think a lot of females gain weight in their legs or their hips, but then not so much in their stomach. And I yeah. saw that very much, no matter what part of our season, in season, off season, 
you saw the the differences amongst people, right? Like even when we're all on stage, everyone has a different distribution of weight. And and I think that's where these issues arise is that we think that if everyone tries hard enough, they can all fit into this one mold. And it's just not true. Body diversity exists. Yeah. It, it just it exists like we all ate the same and we all did the same exercises our bodies would still look different mm. you know it's like like with everything that there's nuance right and there are I, variants to it so I'm a I'm a really big um really big into um epigenetics I love epigenetics huh? so you know we do know that we can change things over generations by doing certain things so if mm-hmm. I was not overweight in my pregnancy and upon conception and mm-hmm. I kind of carry that on then hopefully my children will not have the predisposition to become obese or to gain too much weight um and there are, again there are many variants to it but equally we do have genetic predispositions to the way our bodies are built mm-hmm, you know mm-hmm. ancestrally and genetically mm-hmm. and I just I just wonder kind of how we come to terms with that and how we become okay like you say you hold weight on your stomach I'm the same mm-hmm. I hold weight on my stomach people will always say oh your legs are like yeah okay but maybe you are complimenting my legs because you put on weight on your legs but you might have a flat stomach or you know right right just totally. weight in different parts and I just wonder how we can get to a place of acceptance with our personal body shape yeah yeah I think that's so hard especially with I mean I feel like on social media there is a lot more representation of people in all different mm. size bodies but I even notice a, I mean, I've, I've really made sure that my Instagram feed is a particular feed, you know, yes, me too. for certain reasons, but I do notice that even, you know, models like in, in larger bodies, there still is that similar shape of the waist is thinner yes, so, yeah. and there's curvy and it's like the same ideal, but just bigger versus like someone with weight that they gain in their stomach and their legs are smaller you know it's like I don't see that quite as much but again I think there are accounts and people out there obviously that exist and I think that can be a really helpful but also like um, you can take action right now today to work on that where it's like even just seeing that those people exist I think is really helpful because I I mean, think about the TV shows we watched growing up or the movies we watched growing up. It's like, what did you see? Like you look back at movies from the nineties and absolutely so cringy. You're like, Oh my gosh, you can't see that. Or like, so like no, no wonder we feel this way about our body because I, because you see one thing and that's all you think is good right and so I think the representation of different bodies is just so important and and I think that that's available now on social media and and I think seeking that out can be really helpful I think uh, we were teenagers in the 90s I think that was the most dangerous time to be a teenager it maybe now was like TikTok though (laughs) yeah but you know what you've got that but also you can go on social media you can very much curate like you say your feed and who you are looking at Whereas yes. then it was whatever was put in your face. The 90s was heroin chic, Kate yes, Moss yes. on the runways. It was sex mm-hmm. in the city. It was friends. It was, you know, even friends like Rachel, Monica and Phoebe started off. I mean, they weren't even, I wouldn't even call them curvy, but they started off maybe a bit softer. And uh-huh. then as the seasons went on, they were all stick thin. Oh, like, yeah. Sex yeah. In the city, all the girl bands and even the girl, like Spice Girls were promoting girl power, but they were all. They all had the same flat stomachs, you know. Yeah, all they're all white. They're all thin. Yep. <laughs> the, and that was the 90s. That's what we were seeing. And there was no one else to see. I remember yep, even yep. presenters, like radio presenters. Radio presenters. They're on the radio. I would yeah. go to live radio shows on the weekend, like pop shows in London. Yeah. And the radio presenters, the radio DJs, and they all looked the same as well, you know. And that damaged me so much. I think, you know, teenagers now do have the choice. And I think one thing parents can take action with is just kind of watching who your children are following because Mm -hmm, now we mm -hmm. do have that choice and I think that helps yes I agree and I think also too not only was there a specific type of person represented but when someone in a bigger body was Mm. represented it was uh, presented in a way that they were like the sad friend or the person that just ate all the time or like 
I'm thinking of like Austin Powers, like Fat Bastard, or like all right. of these like characters, or even like Fat Monica, where you watch friends yeah. and you're like, she's not even big. <laughs> she's like maybe compared to like Monica on the regular, like in her regular role, but like she's not even that big. Like it's just the representation of what a, a fat person was in those times was so damaging as well you know it wasn't just like a it wasn't a neutral role it was always it always carried some negative connotation with it and yeah. I think with those things like that and then things like the show like my 600 pound story it's like there's no positive representation of people living their lives in larger bodies so all we see is these like really negative things and then we create this fear of okay well I'm going to be the friend that gets made fun of, or I'm going to wind up like my 600 pound story where there's like, there's lots of people in different bodies living fulfilling lives. And yeah. and I think, you know, as we just kind of spoke about seeing that can be really, really validating and really helpful. Well, I'm not sure how far we've come because if you think about it, you know, Hollywood movies, there's no larger girls that are, that are the, the, the lead role, the starlet, you know, the starlet, the Hollywood starlet is still, you know, Jennifer, what's her name? And can't even think of any of the names now. What's her name? Jennifer. There's a, they're all the Jennifers, all the Jennifers. Lawrence Aniston. <laughs> Lawrence, that was it. Yep. Emma Stone. Even the girls are like a little bit quirky, maybe they're still thin. And then you've got, you know, Rebel Wilson. She's still the goofy, you know. Yeah, goofy friend. So I think we have, we're coming further, but we haven't come that far yet. Not in terms yeah. of movies, I don't think. I agree. I mean, even watching TV now, I'm just like, I get a little irritated. I think because I know the harm that it caused me and like mm. the like the pain that I went through for a lot of years, like obviously it wasn't just from watching one TV show, but like I'll watch shows now and I'm like, did you watch Schitt's Creek? Did you watch that? No, I haven't watched that one. No, I've heard of it. I've heard it's really good. It's pretty good. So basically like they're like millionaires, they lose all their money and they move to this really small town. And, you know, it's just like, so unrealistic like all of these shows where you're like no one looks like this not right. to mention there's not a bar full of people that look like this you know what I mean it's just these the people that we see we, we you're so right like we really we're, we've come we're not saying like politically incorrect things anymore but there still needs to be yeah uh, changes yeah. yeah yeah We'll be back to the episode really soon, but first, a quick word from our sponsors, Block Blue Light. So as a busy mum and entrepreneur, there are days where I have to work into the evening, and this means being at my screen way longer than I'd prefer. So a while back, I invested in a pair of blue light blocking glasses. Now, if you've never heard of blue light blocking, let me give you a quick rundown. Natural blue light from the sun boosts our mood and alertness, but technology has meant that we're now exposed to so much artificial blue light from screens, devices and all modern lighting and it's really affecting our health. Artificial blue light disrupts our sleep, interferes with our hormones and causes digital eye strain which can lead to long-term eye health issues. Now I've been wearing my blue light blocking glasses for a while but it was in the second lockdown when I was homeschooling that I decided to get a pair for my five-year-old to protect him from the amount of screen time that was required for his learning and he now wears them anytime he's at a screen and if he's watching TV after dark. We got them from Block Blue Light, who are the world's leading supplier of blue and artificial light blocking products. I chose them above some of the other brands because they're dedicated to delivering the world's most optimal and science-backed blue light glasses and blue blocking lighting solutions like light bulbs. Some benefits you might notice instantly are improved sleep, less headaches, less migraines if you suffer from them, less eye strain, and a genuine boost in your well-being as your body adjusts back to its natural circadian rhythms. And let me tell you, since wearing these glasses, it's the first time in his whole five years that my son has slept past 7 a.m. And my most recent revelation with Block Blue Light has been their fit over glasses. Because I wear glasses for TV and computer and was finding it hard to wear both. But the fit over glasses are designed to slip right over your normal glasses without any heaviness or strain. So you get the best of both worlds. 
So to check out all of Block Blue Light's incredible health boosting products, including day and nighttime glasses, blue light blocking light bulbs, and 100% light blocking sleep masks to help you into a deeper sleep, visit blockbluelight.co.uk and use the code Lauren10 for a 10% discount. That's blockbluelight.co.uk and use the code Lauren10. Thank you to Block Blue Light. People who are listening now who this is new to them are probably still thinking what we touched on earlier, which is if I intuitively eat, I'm just going to put on loads of weight. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. let's go there a bit. What, what do you teach your clients in regards to that? Yeah, well, I think that's probably everyone's number one fear is that if I allow myself to eat what I want, I'll just eat everything. I'll never stop eating. And then I'll just gain a bunch of weight until I eventually die. And I just tell people, first and foremost, by starting intuitive eating, you're not suddenly going to flip the switch and then like no longer care about your weight anymore. Like if you dieted your whole life, you've lived in this culture where we've been taught that thin is better. The desire to lose weight will probably still be there. But I always tell my clients, you can hold on to that desire if you'd like. Can we put it on the back burner though? Can we place it to the side for now? Because again, like I said before, if you're still acting with that intention, it's going to interfere with this process. So you can still have that desire if you like, but just let's not act on it if that's possible. Mm. Then I always tell people, as you go through this process, you're probably going to go through a little bit of a honeymoon phase. As you get to principle three with making peace with food, suddenly I'm saying you have unconditional permission to eat whatever you want, whenever you want, truly. Go ahead, experiment, eat all the things. That's kind of when you see a slight uptick of just food intake in general, but usually the foods that were previously off limits. And that's a really important phase to go through, although it could be a little uncomfortable. It teaches us two things. One, we learn firsthand how food feels in our body. We figure out which foods feel certain ways and how much of each food feels this way or feels that way. What it also does is it takes the allure away from certain foods. Like if you did keto, for example, you can't have carbs or not that many, right? So maybe something like a cupcake or brownies seems like, oh my gosh, I'm going to eat all the brownies. Well, fruit seems like crazy if you're in the keto diet. (laughs) An apple or a banana seems like Uh just absolutely crazy. Yeah. Uh Uh-huh. Wild. So basically as you're going through that, you know, if you're doing that, a brownie is going to seem like the craziest thing ever, right? Like I, oh my gosh, I'm going to eat all the brownies. But if you eat brownies for breakfast, lunch, and dinner for a month, you're eventually not going to want a brownie anymore. You're going to be like, okay, great. Another brownie, you know, and that's kind of what this phase is all about. It's not trying to get anyone to burn out on any particular food, but to take away that heightened emotional response that we have Mm. because it's no longer off limits. I can have this whenever I want. And so I can choose to have it now, or maybe I'll have it later when I'm feeling a little bit more hungry and it will taste better and it will be more satisfying. Right. It's, I guess it's like when you're little and your mom tells you, you can't have these sweets you can't have to say you want them more like if you go to a party and you're the kid that's not allowed chocolate or sweets you stand at the table eating them all right so now you're kind of giving the women permission and the licensing Mm -hmm. to eat what your body's telling you to eat and then Mm -hmm. is there a pattern because you you did say that usually they kind of you know the uptake of food is a bit more is there a pattern that people go through when they start this and like how long does it take until it's I guess you know balanced out where they just feel good about what they're eating. Yeah. Well, I think it's so individualized. It really has a lot to do with, you know, if someone's dieted for five years versus for 30 years, you would think that the person that's only been dieting a shorter time, things would probably change a bit quicker, but that's not the case for everyone. Like everyone is so different. Um, But the pattern I usually see in relation to the food is that you see that uptick and then eventually your body starts to crave just variety, right? It it starts to crave things that were maybe prescribed on a certain diet. Like in the beginning of the process, you're like, I'm never going to eat carrots or celery ever again, because I had to eat those, whatever. Mm -hmm. And then as you go through, maybe you're having all of your off limit foods. And then suddenly your body starts to crave just different things. And Hey, maybe you want a carrot one day, maybe you want some celery the other day. Personally, I hate celery, but just giving (laughs) an example. Um, So To give a timeline on that, I don't want to do that because I don't want to discourage anyone listening that might be on their own journey that's like, Mm. well, I'm this many months in and that hasn't happened for me yet. So, you know, I think a lot of people have this this, um, concern that they're doing intuitive eating wrong, quote unquote, because a diet is, here's this list of rules to follow or to break. 
Whereas intuitive eating is really a process and a journey. And you can't really get it wrong because if you do something that doesn't feel good, that's just data and that's just information, right? Mm. So you're constantly learning and you're constantly gathering data about your body. So again, I do normally see a honeymoon phase kind of followed by this balancing out of things. Um, I would say, I mean, I work with my clients over the course of five months. By the end of the five months, I would say they all are pretty confident in, you know, having the tools to do this work on their own. Um, obviously it becomes more automatic the longer that you do it. Um, but it's kind of like anything else. I think it's kind of like yoga too, where you just, you keep practicing at it and you keep exploring and you keep learning more. And if you stop doing yoga, you're probably not going to be as proficient in eagle pose or whatever. I don't even know if that's a thing. Um, you know, so if you go back to dieting, it might take you some time to get back into intuitive eating. And so all I'm trying to say is that it really is a journey and it looks different for everyone. Um, and it, and it really depends on what you're doing. Like for me personally, like I didn't work with anyone and I think it took me a lot longer than I think it does for a lot of my clients because I was trying to figure things out on my own. I'm like, is this normal? Is it not normal? Should I be doing this? Is this what I should expect? I don't know. And it was like a lot of back and forth versus when you have someone that's like, nope, that's part of this. Keep going. Or why don't we try exploring this? It really expedites the process. So I think it really depends on what kind of journey people are on and their support system too. And how many women do you have on your group at a time? So for my group, I have four groups running right now. There's anywhere from six to 12 people in each one. And then I work one-on-one with uh, with people as well. So do the women support each other in the group as they're going along the five months? And yeah. that's part of the yeah. process? Yeah, it's really nice. And I honestly think that's one of the biggest components of this is I have them all on like a group chat type of thing through the platform that I use for the whole program. There's a, you know, a big chat box and everyone you know, set, uh, set their intention. They will ask for support with certain things. They'll share different wins. One group is, is even doing like a holiday gift exchange. I was like, oh my gosh, that's so nice. So yeah. Because it's, it's really- a very personal thing, isn't it? It's like a really yes. something, it, it, if you're a woman and you have been dealing with this your whole life, it's been a lifelong thing. And all of a sudden you're making this change. The people that are going through that with you are going to become your friends for life. I would, yes. I would, you know, reckon at least a yes. few of them anyway. Completely. And I think it's the type of thing where when you're struggling, excuse me, when you're struggling with it, it feels very isolating and it feels like you're the only one and like everyone else has it figured out. Mm. Them I can't figure it out. And then suddenly you're in a Zoom room with 10 other people describing like exactly how you might feel about mm. something. And it's very validating, I think. As much as you don't want other people to struggle, I think it's comforting to know like, hey, I'm not alone in this and I really do have a support system here for me. Yeah. It sounds brilliant. It sounds great. Obviously, I'm going to put all the details for your coaching and your groups and everything in the show notes so people can can look it up because uh, so many of us need this. But you know, kind of going back to food because you are a dietitian. You know, certain foods boost our moods, and so I think you know. I I wonder what you think about if we do eat more of those good foods, then you want to eat more good foods anyway, right? And then you do end up getting. I guess the body you want, because I mean, I've always gone about it when people come to me, like I said, I've never taken on a nutrition client for nutrition. Mm-hmm. Never. Mm-hmm. And I never will mm-hmm. because I, my, my process is, is very, um, it's a combination of, uh-huh. you know, health and mindset and all of that stuff. And, um, I am a big believer that when you give your body the things it wants, mm-hmm. everything else follows, you start to look good. You know, your hair looks good. Your skin looks good. So when people say, I really need something to make my skin better. Mm-hmm. Well, what are you eating? What else are you doing? What water mm-hmm. are you drinking? You know, there's like a whole process. It's not like just rub on a cream and everything will be fixed. Yeah. So I think yeah. it's the same with this, you know, and I've always said that to people, however much weight you want to lose, let's start from the top. Because if you are eating foods that make you feel better about yourself and you're mm-hmm. eating for health, the weight falls off anyway. Yeah, I would, I would agree with that partially, but I, I think some people do, like, I don't think that happens for everyone. You know, I think some people, if they've, especially if they've been on lots of diets, we know that dieting really raises our set point. 
So while I think that can happen for a lot of people, um, I don't, I, I mean, I think some people, uh, I don't know. I'm like, I don't think it, it happens for everyone. I think it definitely obviously impacts mood for sure. I mean, obviously we know things like omega-3s and all the different vitamins and stuff. And, I, and I'm not trying to um, minimize that nutrition plays a role in all of those things. Um, but I think just by focusing on how you feel, and again, going back to that intuition piece of things, where it's like, when I'm doing things that feel good in my body, then that momentum kind of continues, yeah, right? Yeah. And and it kind of takes- But that's what itself. I mean by health. You know, yes, health is, yes, a, exactly. is a broad term, and that's exactly what I mean. So I do agree with yes. you. It's when yeah. you are doing everything for your body, for your mind, for your spirit, you yeah. feel better and then you feel better in your body and you look better. Whatever that means yeah. to you at that time, yeah. you're going to yeah. look better when you feel good. And so it really is mm-hmm. getting to that point. Self-love, right? It all comes back to that. Totally. And I think there's a lot to be said about just your energy and how you kind of carry mm. yourself. And I think when you feel really good, you just, I think you just, I don't know, I'm into like the law of attraction. And I know that's definitely yes. something that a lot of people might be like okay like, oh no yeah. no you've got the right into <laughs> cool but I mean I really do think it's like that's why my handle is feel good dietitian because if we can just do more things that feel good you're going to rise raise your you know vibrational point of attraction like I do something that feels good and so I'm, I'm sending off that signal of a good feeling thing and then I attract something else that feels good and it just kind yeah. of builds that momentum so I think if we can just focus on and when I say feel good, I don't just mean like temporarily, oh, if I eat all of these things right now, I'm going to feel good, but then I'll feel like, you know, not so great afterwards. What's really going to make you feel good? Like what's really going to take care of your mental health and meet all of your different needs? And I think then that, again, that's that momentum that gets mm. built. Yeah, it's, um, I think it, it's such a, it's su- this is such a great concept. I mean, it, it's pretty life-changing, I think, for anyone yeah. who struggled with weight long-term or, you know, yeah. with their body image. There was a quote, actually, that I came across when I was researching for this that said, um, 80% of weight lost from dieting is gained again within five years of being lost. Yeah. So it's kind yeah. of like, then if that's 80%, you know, let's assume that if it's, it's such a huge majority, we're going to fall in that majority. Mm-hmm. Why are you following that pattern? There must be another way. Yep. I mean, that's actually one of the statistics that we visit with the first principle. I, I know there's another statistic that is 95% of people will regain the weight that they've lost within two to five years with up to 66% of people putting on more weight than they lost in the first wow. place. And that's really our body's way of protecting ourselves. It sees this diet as a famine. And so in response to that, our metabolism slows down. We start to catalog, uh, eat our muscle tissue on <laughs> the blank um eat our muscle tissue for energy right for protein um we increase the enzyme that makes and stores fat we start to think about food more often we have cravings maybe binges and then you just kind of start getting into this yo-yo dieting cycle and we know that yo-yo dieting is actually associated with a greater risk of heart disease with premature death with diabetes with all of these things and so it's like it's not even about I mean, it is, but it's, it's about health too, right? Like diets are not good for our health, making lifestyle changes or behavior changes is great, but intentionally trying to lose weight through calorie restriction and, and cutting things out and deprivation and all of those things is, it's just not even healthy. Mm. You know, forget about the fact that it doesn't work, but it's just not healthy too. You mentioned a bunch of um, conditions there that could come up. And and one thing that people don't mention enough is this early mm-hmm. onset Alzheimer's and dementia that we're seeing now mm-hmm. in people kind of six, in 60s and 70s. And the reason we're seeing so much of that is because these Weight Watchers and Slimming World things came along kind of in the 80s. So the, the generation, yeah, the generate, <laughs> exactly, the generation mm-hmm. of women that were kind of in their 30s or 20s, 30s or 40s at the time were following these low fat diets, not getting any fat in their diets. The brain needs fat. Fat's a brain food. Know, the brain like is fat, right? Isn't it like 60% fat or something? I mean, it's, it's, and so, so yeah. So like, you know, there's so much early onset dementia and Alzheimer's now. And, you know, people are not, you know, we're not enough seeing the correlation between that and this kind of low fat culture. I'm glad we kind of are coming out of that a bit. This kind yeah. of white watches. We're going fat. a little bit too far in the other direction. Yes, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, with keto and all of that. Now. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, because that's not so great for the liver either. But well, that's the yeah. thing. It all comes down to balance. So maybe this will be your answer, but I would like to ask you what your takeaway message would be for anyone listening now who has struggled with body image their whole life yeah. is kind of thinking, this sounds really good, but I'm a little bit scared. What's your takeaway message for them? My takeaway message would just be, why not just do some exploration, right? Like if you've tried everything else in the past, dieting will always be there. In 20 years, there'll be some other type of keto resembling diet, you know, like it was Atkins, now it's keto. Like there will be something else and there will always be dieting to go back to. But if it hasn't worked so far, you know, that's the definition of insanity, right? Like doing the same thing over and over again mm. and expecting different results. But they're very convincing. There's $72 billion of the dieting industry messaging, convincing us that like this one's different, this one's different, but it's kind of all the same. And I know I fell victim to that as well. So why not explore this? And if it's not for you, then it's not for you. And that's completely fine. But again, if you've tried the other things, why not just give this a shot? And so I would say a great place for people to start is um, just by reading the intuitive eating book by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. It's like a green and yellow and white cover. It's the fourth edition. It's on Amazon for like $15, I think. Um, if that's too much, there's a lot of blog articles. If you go to intuitiveeating.com or .org, just put it into Google. Um, you know, you can just do some research that way as well. Mm, amazing. It, it's funny what you said about the, um, you know, the books. This is, this is the, the, this one's different. And it does feel like that when you read the books. It's like, no, 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 this one is different because, and you could read every single one of those books and they will all make you feel like this one is different. Yes, yes. Because but, I think they do a very good job of, they give a lot of examples and like life um, you know, like Susan walked into the office and blah, 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 blah. And you're like, I've done that too. Like that doesn't yeah, exactly yeah. like me. So I think as you read through it, you can really, uh, res it, it resonates really well with a lot of people. Yeah. But you know, what it doesn't take into account is that we are all made differently mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. genetically and all of that stuff, like every single person is made differently and every single person responds differently to different foods and different yeah. lifestyles. And that's why living intuitively in all senses of the word, is yeah. going you're going to thrive more because you're living based on your body's own makeup yes yeah and, and but that's why i love the framework because the framework remains the same but the way that it's implemented in your life versus my life is going to look different because we just have different needs and different life experiences right so it's the same framework but it's really tailored to the individual too you know amazing Okay, so I end every episode with a little thing called All About You. And it's just a little oh, okay. segment for people to get to know you more. I haven't prepared you because I like people to... I know, I'm like, is this thing just fun? Yeah, it's like a quick fire round. No, no, no. Do you know what? It's great because then you answer from your intuition when you don't have time to okay. think about it. Okay, cool. Okay, so number one is what self-care ritual is integral to making intuitive eating work? Oh, I think that's going to... I think that varies from person to person but I think nourishing your body I mean like honoring your hunger that's why it's the second principle like that's it's not going to work as I said in the beginning is like it's rational thinking is part of this process and if you're not nourishing your body and you're not eating enough you're not going to be able to implement the framework in fact I mean if you're someone that's suffering from anorexia like intuitive eating cannot be the, the uh, entry point right like we need to make right. sure that you're eating enough before we even introduce this framework I mean maybe you can talk about the uh the principles and stuff but again if you're not eating enough it, it's not gonna really work so that's my answer okay <laughs> The number one food you'd like everyone to introduce to their diets? Oh, man. Um, the food that they've been afraid of and really love to eat. I don't know. Whatever it is for that person. Like, I really love blank, but I shouldn't eat it. Just eat it and eat it mindfully and notice the flavors and the textures and the smells and how it feels in your mouth and eat it mindfully and see how that experience is for you. It's funny you said about you know really eating it mindfully. It's I did put this in my notes, but it's something we didn't touch on about the senses. You know, we are humans, and we were given these human bodies, however mm -hmm. spiritual we may be. And with those bodies, we were given these senses and the enjoyment through the senses, through eating, through food. You know, like you say, the Japanese see that as a big part of 
I think yeah. it's so important. Like I, my husband and I really make a conscious effort now to eat mindfully. So when we're eating, slowing it down, tasting the food, looking at the food, smelling the food. It's a whole mm-hmm. different process. It's like a totally different world when you're doing it like that. Totally, totally. And, and not to mention that eating distracted or eating in different types of environments impacts the way that we even digest and assimilate our food. I, I mean, there's studies that I always reference in some of my uh, modules that uh, I, I guess they had someone drink like a, a solution of different, um, it was like a, I don't know, a mineral cocktail. And they had someone drink it under calm, peaceful uh, conditions and they were able to assimilate all the nutrients, whatever. Then they had someone talking in their left ear and in their right ear to mimic a really stressful environment. It went down to zero. They couldn't wow. assimilate anything. So yeah. just going to show that there's so much more to, and that's kind of what I was getting at before with like, we're all so different. And there's so many things that like, maybe we don't even consider of like, this person eats under really stressful conditions all the time. And this person's really calm, right? And so that's going to impact the way that we absorb our nutrients as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so being mindful, I think that's, that's all about getting out of our heads. And that really just brings us to the present moment, right? And I think we can kind of all afford to do that uh, more often throughout the day, right? Like we're always on our phones, we're always on our computers. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's to bring ourselves back to the present moment, grounding ourselves, using our senses, I think is really powerful. That's why monks eat in silence, isn't it? Because they're supposed to be able to really nourish their bodies with the food and be mindful and be grateful for the food and let the food do yeah. what it's supposed to. There is actually a Hindu quote, again, I'm probably going to get it a bit wrong, but it's chew your drinks and sip your food. As in, I, and I always think about that when I'm drinking my smoothie in the morning, <clears throat> excuse me, because you can just down the whole smoothie. And yeah, actually, yep. unless your, your mouth has made the saliva and you've taken it slow, you're, you're, there's amazing stuff in that smoothie, but my body's not going to make the most of it if I haven't really drunk it mindfully. Yes. Yes. Not to mention like chewing stimulates digestive juices, right? So yeah. like that will, will help break it down as well. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot to be said with just mindfulness in general. I think that's kind of like the overarching theme of intuitive yeah. as well. It's like, let's just get back into the present moment and be kind. <laughs> it's really what it's all about. Yeah, well, life should kind of just be exactly. based on that rule, right? <laughs> this well, is why I'm, that's why I'm no good at quick fire rounds because I can't do quick. I just go on and on and off on tangents. <laughs> Well, real quick, what I was going to say was that's why I think intuitive eating is so great because it does mirror so many other things just in life in general. And it does end up impacting relationships and career and just personal development and all that stuff because you're really shifting your belief system and the way that you talk to yourself. So that's it. I'll go on to the next question. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, this is a fun one. What would your last supper be? Oh, what would my last supper be? I'm like not one of those people. I, you know what? I really love truffle fries, but then I also like, I think it might be, we actually went out for dinner on my birthday this year and it was these like mini raviolis in this like truffle sauce. That's oh, what wow. it would be. It would be that. <laughs> wow. You're really good at this. I am the, I cannot just, anyone asks me this question. I can't answer. I am that indecisive person who wants something different on every day. I can't answer. I usually am too, but I was like, that was really, really good. And it was super expensive. So I'm like, not going to get it anytime soon again. <laughs> so I'm like, that would be it. <laughs> that sounds yum. Okay. Yeah. If you were holed up in another lockdown with no TV or internet and you could only choose one book, what would it be? Oh my gosh, that's a hard one. See, I have this thing where I would, I actually really like murder mystery books, mm. but I tend to read a lot of like books related to intuitive eating or like like body respect. I, I do this thing where I buy a book, read half of it and then buy another book and read half <laughs> yeah. of it. Um, it would probably be some type of murder mystery though. Cause I do like those, which is kind of weird that we as humans even like reading about that, but that's I guess the imagination going, which is also good for the brain. That's why I like to yes. read fiction. Cause I love with what I do. I also love reading nonfiction and about the human brain and about, you know, well-being and everything. But I also love reading fiction. And I think it's really good to give yourself a break to do that. Cause it activates another part of the brain, doesn't it? Totally, totally. And I, I find that like a lot of the reading that I do is really for like professional stuff versus just sitting down, relaxing and exactly, like, taking yeah. some time for myself. So maybe I'll order myself one of those after. Yeah, <laughs> I always think nonfiction reading is for the daytime and fiction reading is for nighttime. 
totally. Okay, so last one, just because you and I both grew up in the 90s. First celebrity crush. Oh, you know, I really liked Orlando Bloom from like Pirates of the Caribbean. Do you know who that is? Yeah. Wait, how old are you? I'm 30. I feel like maybe that was like when, you know, that was probably not childhood. That was probably when I was like 12 or 15 or something. Yeah, yeah. No, you're a little bit younger than me because I, yeah, because I was thinking kind of like that was in the 2000s already, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Like if but I he's a good of, crush. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm trying to think of someone like even younger than that. I don't even. Oh, I have no idea. Oh, you know what? I always thought that <laughs> Benny the Jet from The Sandlot. You know that movie. No. <laughs> Which movie? Benny Benny the Jet Rodriguez. I hope people listening to this appreciate. People listening just gonna be like, what are they talking about? Do you Why are they talking the about celebrity crushes? What what is this podcast about? That was about health and growth. No, we just we just or talk someone about might be like, crush. I love the Sandlot, and they'd be like, Yeah, I thought. That was <laughs> I just love it. It's just a little bit of fun, you know. Yeah, people exactly. get to know you. We loosen up a bit. Exactly. Okay, I don't know who that is. Let's go with Orlando Bloom because I know who that is. Perfect. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing, Lauren. Thank you so much. And um, just before we uh, switch off, where can people find you? Your course, your Instagram. Your Instagram's amazing, by the way. Oh, thank you. Thanks. Try to keep it light on there. Um, so my Instagram is at Feel Good Dietitian. Dietitian with two T's. I don't know if it's spelled with a C there, but two T's. Um, my website's laurencadillac.com. Um, TikTok, Feel Good Dietitian. That's probably the main places. Amazing. Okay, well, thank you so much for speaking to me today. Thank and I can't wait to get this episode out for people to hear all about intuitive eating. I think it's going to get such a great response. I hope so. I hope so. I really do think it can be so life-changing. Like I always say, I'm like, if everyone in the world read this book, I think the world would really be a different place. But yeah. maybe I'm just obsessed with it. I don't know. <laughs> no, I, think, I hope I people think enjoy. I think it's pretty life-changing. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, thank you, well, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to Recondition today. I'd be so grateful if you could subscribe and maybe even leave a review. Or better still, if you could share with friends and family who you think could benefit from the content. Really, it's all about just sharing the love so that everyone can understand how to use an integrative approach to life and health.